No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to the Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Jerry Cooney describes the feelings that drove him to become one of the best heavyweight boxers of all time. Fear pushed me. Fear wanted me to survive. We have this instinct. We want to survive. I mean, somebody told me a couple years ago, he said, Jerry, no matter what your father did to you, he gave you the, the strength to make it to the top. In that time, I was always trying to prove him wrong. Also, the executive director of the Chicago Marathon explains what makes his race unique. We start and finish in the same place, which is Grant Park, which is a beautiful venue on the lakefront. But we get a great tour of the city. We go up north and we go west, down through the south side, some iconic architecture, some really wonderful neighborhoods. Maybe people that are coming to Chicago for the first time get a real flavor of the fabric of our community. Plus, Seth Berkman on the historic unification of the 2018 Korean Women's hockey team that competed at the Olympics. When Kim Jong-un kind of offers his olive branch, the South Korean government, people around the Olympic Committee are saying, hey, let's see how we can take advantage of it. So the wheels got in motion very quickly. The first choice was the one brought up once earlier, which is the women's hockey team. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with the director of the Chicago Marathon, which is taking place Sunday. But first, in the 1970s and 1980s, when the heavyweight division was perhaps at its best ever, he was a number one contender for the heavyweight crown. He fought for the title famously in 1982 against Larry Holmes. Jerry Cooney's new book is Gentleman Jerry, a contender in the ring, a champion in recovery. And it's a pleasure to welcome back to the sporting life, Jerry Cooney. Why now, Jerry? Why, why is, why write this book now? You know, Jeremy, it is, uh, years and, you know, it's been a lot, a lot went on in my life. A lot of great things, a lot of not so great things. I made a lot of mistakes and, uh, you know, it took me a long time to figure it out and to want to get it out. And I'll tell you what, Jeremy, it was very healing for me. It took five years to do the book with uh, a therapist, uh, Johnny Grady, and, and we had a great time fixing it. And, man, I'll tell you, what a life I had. And from where I came from as a kid, growing up in that atmosphere of alcoholism and uh, abuse and neglect, to be make it to the number one in the world is phenomenal. Jerry, when you look back at your childhood, what are the most vivid memories for you? Well, I mean, we, we had vivid memories was... We had to try and figure out every night when my father came home, what was he going to be like and how we were going to stay away from him. And, and uh, I learned to sit in the back of the class and never raise my hand because at home, you got to beat him when that happened. And so you, you, you learn how to survive. It's not live. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you, you don't take a shot. In 1976, I got invited to the finals of the Olympic trials. Uh, I just had four great knockout wins. Three in Europe, four in Europe, one in the garden against the heavyweight Russian team. I fought the third-ranked Russian. And, you know, I get the phone call. I made the finals. That's the top eight guys. I told him, I'm sorry, I can't make it. He said, are you sure, Jerry? I said, I'm sorry, my father's sick. I can't make it. And he asked me a third time. 
And I said the same thing. I'm sorry. He said, okay. He hung up the phone with me. And that was 10% true. 90% was I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look terrible. Why am I going to make an ass of myself? And real, the fight is make, taking the shot and, and jumping in the water. And that's what I, I try and propose to kids today. You know, I work with orphan kids a lot. And I hang out with them. We have a lot of fun and we talk about life. And one of the things is you got to jump in the water. You got to ask the question. You got to raise your hand. I didn't know that. I, I had to find my way since my father died when I was 18. You know, I had to find a manager, get a gym, a trainer. There's a lot of stuff, Jeremy. We're speaking with Jerry Cooney. His new book is Gentleman Jerry, a contender in the ring, a champion in recovery. And when you were growing up on Long Island, what did it mean to you, the heavyweight championship of the world? Jeremy, when I saw Larry Holmes and Joe Frazier, I was, like, amazed. I knew at that time I wanted to be a fighter. I used to take boxing gloves, two sets of gloves, to the bus stop early in the morning, and I used to box with everybody at the bus stop (laughs) as a kid. And then at 15 and a half, my brother had left the house. He ran away when he was 15, and he went to a gym, and I got to follow him watch him. I love my brother. And I remember I got in the ring at 15 and a half and boxed this little tank, half my size almost, and he knocked me around that ring, and I says, oh, my God. I threw the gloves off, went home, and said, forget it. But I went down in the basement, and I hit the heavy bag again, understanding that somebody was going to come on me. And then at that young age, I went back to the gym two days later, and I asked, could I box that kid again? And I did, and he couldn't do that to me anymore. How did it make you feel when you realized you had this gift and you had the ability to impose your will on other young men in the boxing ring? Jeremy, let me tell you something. I was fearful every time I got in the ring. I never believed in myself. What happened to me, I was waiting for them to ring the bell. Once they ring their bell, I have to fight. So I was, I, I, I was, I had all these boogeymen in my head telling me I'm not good enough. You're going to fail. You're not going to make it. But once the bell rang, I had to fight. And once I fought, I was going to let you feel my power, and uh, I could punch. And in my first year in the Golden Gloves in 1973, I had seven fights. I had five knockouts to win the middleweight title. You had this gift. Um, you became one of the best fighters in the world, but there were still the demons. Um, How did you get to the heights while you were still fighting yourself at the same time? Out of fear. Fear pushed me. Fear fear wanted me to survive. You know, you know, listen, we have this instinct. We want to survive. I mean, somebody told me a couple of years ago, he said, Jerry, no matter what your father did to you, he said he, he gave you the, the strength to make it to the top. But, you know, in, in that time, I was always trying to prove him wrong. He was proving, I'm going to show him he's wrong. And then, you know, in the biggest fight of my life, it's almost like I, I, I work with kids and the dysfunctional kids, and you shine them up, you fix them up, you, they can punch, they can fight. Once they get ready to, to go out into the world, they take a rock and they throw it into the engine. And that's what we do as, as people who grew up in that kind of an atmosphere. We don't trust ourselves in the, the bottom line. And, uh, and that's what happened to me. And the night I knocked out Kenny Norton in 54 seconds of the first round, the night I was ranked number one in the world, I'm going to get a shot at Larry Holmes, 
was the night I, f- I fell apart. I started drinking and started messing around, staying out late and not sleeping, not running, not taking care of myself. Why did that happen? I don't know. But I want to I want to make it different for somebody going forward. What was it like for you at that moment in time to be the focus of so much attention and also to be unraveling? It was unbelievable. I mean, on one side, I wanted that adulation. I wanted to, I, there's nothing better when you walk out of the dressing room and hear the roar of the crowd. So that kept me alive, too. I, that made me breathe. That made me want to be a fighter because I, I, I was accepted. I wanted that that fame, that success. I wanted to feel those feelings. I wanted to be loved. And, uh, but at the same point, we don't trust it. We don't believe in it. It's not real. And so you kind of try and take away the pain of that by not, by drinking and, and, and not feeling. And, you know, I, I never had somebody, I, I was involved with these two real estate guys, Jeremy, that they hated each other. My only, my only grace in that was that I had one watch the other. But because I was with them, and also Don King owned the heavyweight division, they wouldn't give me the fights I needed because I wouldn't sign with him. So I was fighting once a year during my heyday when I should have been fighting two, three, or four times a year, gaining the experience so that when I had a shot to fight Larry Holmes, I could have been successful. You're 24 years old when you knock out Ken Norton, the former heavyweight champion of the world. Um, That was May 11th, 1981. It's exactly 13 months later that you fight Larry Holmes. And that fight was a big deal. You were on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, it was hyped as a fight between um, you know, the great white hope, you, and the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. There were It was more than racial undertones or overtones. It, it was a fight uh, being billed in some ways almost as a race war. What was your level of understanding of what was going on at the promotional level then? Uh, I want to tell you, too, that during this time, I was also living the life. I had a great life. I, I had five or six friends I went to school with that came to training camp with me. We were eating turtle soup and lobster tail and, and, and lobster bisque. We had no, <laughs> we, we didn't pay attention to any racism. That wasn't part of us. I was, listen, I'm a poor kid from Long Island. I was living the dream. I was living in Palm Springs, in, in Caesar's Palace. I mean, it, it was a great, I mean, was it a lot of work? Yeah. I had five or six sparring partners every day wanting to kick my ass. And, and I had to keep ahead of them. And you know, when I'm in the ring with one of them, four other guys are watching me to find out where they can grab me at. So it was a hard work. It was a lot of hard work. But listen, man, it was, I was fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world. So on one side of the coin, I had the life. The other side, there was a lot of stress, a lot of pain. Also, in, in, in the light of all that going on, you know, all the, the burps and the problems came out with my family and the dysfunction came out of my other siblings and my mother and I, I was trying to fix everybody. So, you know, that, that was going on as well. So it was a crazy, crazy time. But, you know, basically, I had a fight. I, I mean, I, I had a fight with Larry Holmes one of the best heavyweights of all time, and I was excited. And it, was, it became so much of a race fight. He was so bitter. All I wanted to do, Jeremy, it's a great story. I wanted to hit him with a hook one time. So I come out of the dressing room. I get in the ring. Millis Lane is giving us instructions. I'm so mad at Holmes. And he says to me, he says, Jerry, let's have a good fight. I said, what would you say that for? I hated you. <laughs> you know, he, he, blew, he messed the whole thing up. But, you know, listen, it wasn't a great experience. I, I don't know why there wasn't 
a second fight. We should have fought again. Uh, you know, I couldn't stand my management. Uh, they were pulling me apart all over the place. The press was against me because they didn't realize that Don King was keeping me out, that I wasn't getting a chance to fight some of those guys that I needed to fight. And the other part was that Rappaport and Jones didn't want to blow the big payday. Your business managers. My boxing managers, yes. And so I'm the guy torn between everybody, and I'm trying to please everybody because, you know, that's the only happiness I had is making people happy. So it was a lot. It was a lot to cope with, a lot to deal with. When the fight was over, I was so sick of my management. I was so sick of Don King, and uh, I, I failed. I felt like I failed. My father was right. So I went into a depression. I grew up since then. I mean, I, I welcome pressure today. I love it. I love that, that pressure heater because I, I have tools today. I developed tools that I should have got while I was growing up that I didn't get. And all throughout the book, we're going to learn that, is that, listen, yeah, I fell down. I got up. I dusted off my pants, but I moved forward. I didn't stay down. Jerry Cooney's new book, his memoir is Gentleman Jerry, co-written with John Grady. After that moment um, in 1982 against Larry Holmes, where you did not succeed what happened then? What happened in terms of your career then? You know, Jeremy, I was watching one night. I was away with a girlfriend in a hotel. And I was watching Saturday Night Live, and they did a skit on me. I'm coming back again. I'm retiring. I'm coming back again. And that was very uh, awakening to me. It was a big awakening. And, and, uh, and that, you know, I couldn't find peace anywhere. I, I, I was looking for something. I, was, I don't know what I was looking for. And when I couldn't find it, my managers wanted me to take another fight. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to take another fight and, until I figure this out. And, you know, it, it didn't work. I had a couple of wins. I, I fought Michael Spinks. I was drinking up to the fight. I, I, I went into that fight as a walking dead man. And it's a shame. Uh, it's a shame. I've, I'm so embarrassed but that loss because that man did never belong in the ring with me on any one of my days. Healthy. Never. I knock him out. And, uh, I mean, I cut him. And, and when, I, when I cut somebody in the ring, you, it's over. And so, but I was, I was like, I was finished. I was like a shell. And then I disappeared for a while. And then after that fight was I finally found I got to put the drink down. I got to stop drinking. I got to start taking care of myself. I got to start paying attention. I need to get some help. And that's been, you know, that was April 21st, 1988. And uh, I fought Spinks in 87, 88. I put it down in April. And I've been on this great experience, this great life ever since. What a ride I'm on. And uh, I, I can't stop. And I, I can't stop talking about it. We're speaking with Jerry Cooney. Jerry, you know, anyone who's around the New York sports scene knows you're always there. Um, you're, you're, you're always lending your time to charitable causes taking care of fighters who find themselves, as they so often do, unfortunately, in dire straits when their careers end. Um, the charitable work, the philanthropic work, um, the work that you do with, uh, with troubled youths, uh, with people who are trying to get into recovery and, and fix their lives. That's what your life centers around now. You said, Jeremy, I have a book just that, you know, we're talking about it. I just opened up a gym about four or five months ago. I'm in the process of doing a movie, a Rocky film about my life. And also I've been, been contacted about doing a television series about following five or six prospects throughout the country 
and travel into their city, if it's in California, interview De La Hoya, Larry Holmes, Foreman, whoever it is. So my life is, is really, when I became available for life, the door opened up. And I, I show up, and I'm, I'm available. If I don't understand, I ask questions. And, and that's what I learned. That this is a great life we have, and it's passing quickly. And we got to live every moment as best we can. What do you think when you look at uh, the heavyweight division now and you see Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury and, you know, we, we know what happened with Anthony Joshua, uh, you know, getting knocked out. Um, what, what do you think of Fury and Wilder, uh, presuming there is a rematch? You know what? In the first fight, you know, listen, Fury got off the canvas in the 12th round and he, and he hurt Wilder twice in that last round. That's not the big fight. You know, listen, Wilder is a great right-hand puncher. If he hits you, you're going to sleep. But if he doesn't, he doesn't have all the tools that you really need to be a heavyweight champion. Ruiz, listen, he, he, he backed up Joshua. He made Joshua get lost. So he's hope We've got a lot of great guys. We've got Joe Joyce. We've got uh, uh, so many great fighters coming up. The heavyweight division, um, Jeremy, is coming back the way it was in the old days. Jerry Cooney's new memoir is Gentleman Jerry, a contender in the ring, a champion in recovery, co-written with John Grady. Jerry, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story, not only with us, but through your book. And uh, we wish you only the best. Jeremy, love you. Say hello to your wife and enjoy your family. And uh, your father's uh, looking down on us right today. I hope so. Jerry Cooney. Love you, brother. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And if you're a regular listener of this show, and I know there are at least a couple of people, maybe no more, you know that we focus on track and field and running in a way that most shows on this network do not. This week, again, we will be talking about, as we do now on an annual basis, one of the great American races. No, not the Daytona 500, not the Indy 500, but the Chicago Marathon, which involves significantly more participants. It is taking place again Sunday, October 13th. More than 45,000 runners are expected to take part, and we are joined by the Executive Race Director, Carrie Pinkowski. Carrie, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, thank you. It's great talking to you this morning. You've only got uh, a couple of days before the race will take place. Uh, I know from uh, my experience as a, a, a Cub reporter in New York in the 90s covering the New York Marathon and Fred LeBeau, the legendary figure who kind of fashioned that event out of whole cloth, how busy it was in the days leading up to the race, marking the course, getting uh, everything set. Uh, what's your life look like right now as we're about 96 hours away from the beginning of the race. Well, it, it hopefully it's 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 uh, it's calm. But uh, you know, Jeremy, t- to your point of me, you referenced the great Fred Lebeau. What what we do is we transform here in Chicago, as they do in New York or Boston or any of these great cities. We transform what is twenty six point two miles of urban roadway into what becomes the Bank of America Chicago Marathon. So everything, all the all the industries of uh, uh, of that and the nuances of that go into the plan, and it's the fine tuning the last few days that is what we spend most of our time on. But it's a year of planning. The city's involved, our residents are involved, our participants, um, the local business, our sponsors. So it's gonna, we're going to have a lot of fun celebrating the 42nd running of this great tradition. And, and Carrie, for, for people who aren't in the know about these things, what is distinctive about your race? 
Well, I think, Jeremy, the course. Um, you know, Boston is, is, a, is a point-to-point, which is Hopkinton to, uh, to Boston, and then New York. They start in Staten Island and finish in Manhattan. We finish, start and finish in the same place, which is Grant Park, which is a beautiful venue on the lakefront. Uh, and we, but we get a great tour of the city. We go up north and we go west, down through the south side, some iconic architecture, some really wonderful neighborhoods. Uh, maybe people that are coming to Chicago for the first time get a real uh, flavor of the, of the fabric of our community. But one thing that sets us apart, I think, is it's so accessible. It's, so, it's very accessible for friends and family members or coaches to get to different locations via public transportation on foot. So they get to see some of these great athletes up front at different spots, but also if they have a, a family member, a loved one, significant other, they can get to different locations and share them on. And in terms of elevation, Chicago is relatively flat. Pretty flat. We got a couple of little bumps there. Anyone that's in Chicago know we, we cross the river five times. So there's a couple of, we go over a couple of bridges that have a little bit of a rise on them. But, you know, the second half of the course is when everybody gets rolling and, and, it, and it, that part of it's dead flat. Uh, but it is, it's, you know, it's, it's hosted uh, four world records in, in our history. So, um, you know, people come here, athletes come here with the, uh, with the mindset of going fast. It's been a while since we've seen world records set in Chicago. I think the last one was in 2002 when Paula Radcliffe, uh, ran at 217, 18. Um, uh, but, you know, now we see those records frequently set in Berlin. That's the place where we see them most often take place at the elite level this year. What are your expectations? Well, we had a couple of athletes that we lost uh, due to injury uh, the last cu- couple of weeks. But our defending champion, Mo Farah, is back. He's he's. Um, one of the most decorated Olympic athletes. Uh, it'll be his, uh, he's the defending champion. He'll look very relaxed here. I think he wants to go a little bit faster. We're going to, we're going to um, uh, tur- turn the pace up a little bit with our, with our pacers up front um, on the women's side. Uh, Bridget Koskai is on an amazing, amazing trajectory. I mean, Paula's uh, Radcliffe 217 that was set in 2002 was an amazing performance, but Bridget had a, had an amazing performance in, in London when she won, Really wonderful second half of the race. Uh, she has since then, you know, she came to the United States and won Peachtree, which is iconic 10K race in, in Atlanta. And then in the great North run a few weeks ago, set the world best for the half marathon. And she's had some good, some good patches of training in there. So this is a place where women have done great. I mean, amazing things. You mentioned Paula, Catherine Dereba going back to the 80s with that classic race between Joan Samuelson and Ingrid Christensen. So we'll see. I mean, if she's feeling good, I think Paula's event record and North American record are are going to be vulnerable. Will she get down to that 215 range, British Koskai? Well, that's a tall order. We'll see. We're speaking with Carrie Pinkowski. He's the executive race director of the Chicago Marathon taking place Sunday in Chicago, expecting, uh, let's not get our hopes up too high, though, near ideal conditions on a course that is meant to be fast. What are the things that keep you up at night over the last few nights before the race actually the, the gun goes off? Well, there's so many there's so many pieces of it. If you think about all the all of the partnerships that that are uh, that play a role in the success of this, I mean, we have a large percentage of our participants that are traveling. So I'm always watching weather from other parts of the country and the world because we have a lot of people that that travel here. Um, you know, the roadway obviously it's active roadway that we will um, turn to the marathon on Sunday. So we're, you know, we have crews that are constantly monitoring the monitoring the quality of the roadway. Weather is a primary focus. Obviously, uh, 
security over the over the past uh, few years has been has been a real a real focal point of ours, and uh, all of those uh, you know mixed into the into the plan are, are things that kind of keep you up at night. But we've got a great staff. The city of Chicago, in my opinion, is the greatest city in the world to put on an event. We've got a great partnership with uh, the mayor's office, the park district, the Chicago Police Department. Uh, there's so many legendary events and iconic sports franchises here. So uh, we got a great team. Uh, we're looking forward to a great day on Sunday. What's the economic impact for the city? Well, we have, you know, we're, you know, that's the that's the upside of the of the event is, you know, we're talking about running and all the pieces of that and all the all the work that goes into it. But the one of the one of the payoffs is the economic impact. We had three hundred and seventy eight million dollars that were generated event week last year, which is great for our community. That's the people that come and stay in the hotels and shop and uh, go out to dinner and do all the things and go to the museums and do all the things that are so important to the to the economy here in Chicago. But it's what we're seeing, especially the fast the past, past 10 years is that our participants are coming with their husband, wife, there's a team in tow, friends, relatives, and those, so those, uh, that number of 45,000 uh, increases with uh, with the team that comes with each of the runners to, to, to cheer them on. And you're capping it at 45,000. Why is it necessary to do so? You know, that's a number we feel really comfortable with. Um, I mean, one of our great assets is the fact that we start and finish in the same location. That's also a challenge to stage um, that many people. Um, we look at a lot of time-lapse photography and look at a lot of the, uh, you know, we get a lot of feedback from our participants. We want to make sure that everybody is comfortable, that everybody can get running right up, right when they cross the start line, and then that staging piece. So 45,000 um, is a very manageable number for us. And it delivers, um, you know, a race day experience that everybody is pleased with. Well, we're looking forward to the race. Where where can it be viewed? Um, who's carrying it? If you go to our website, you can um, you can see the, the our broadcast partners will be on NBC five here locally in Chicago. If you're listening in Chicago and the uh, Olympic Channel nationally, you can, you'll be able to watch. And then here locally, we'll be on AM six seventy the score, which is our legendary sports talk radio. They're going to do wire to wire coverage and streaming. If you go to our website chicagomarathon.com, you can uh, you can see how you can how you can log in, get updates. Uh, watch the streaming or, or log in and watch the NBC broadcast. Love watching the marathon, uh, especially under um, good conditions, which we are again expecting Sunday in Chicago. Carrie Pinkowski is the executive race director for the Chicago Marathon, which I believe is now in its 43rd year. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us and good luck this weekend. Jeremy, thank you so much. Thanks for having us on. We're looking forward to a great day. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Last year at the Winter Olympics, an astonishing thing happened when North and South Korea had one women's ice hockey team in the tournament playing together more than nearly 70 years after the country separated from each other in a time at which they're still officially at war with each other. That remarkable union, that remarkable confluence of events, is the subject of a new book by Seth Berkman, a team of their own, how an international sisterhood made Olympic history. And Seth Berkman joins us now. Seth, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, you're saying to yourself, how can this possibly happen? You know, we're, you know, we're accustomed to stories about, kidnappings uh, perpetrated by the north against the south uh you know the hermit kingdom the um the 
the enduring enmity between North and South with just the very occasional thaws, which give uh, usually it seems false hope. How extraordinary was this? It was very extraordinary. I remember I was actually with the team. They would have training camps in Minnesota every few months. And so they had just left their final training camp before the Olympics. This was about two, three weeks before the games were going to start. And I had just gotten home that weekend. I remember just scrolling through the New York Times just casually and seeing the note saying that it had been agreed upon that the unified team was going to happen. And I was just kind of like, wait, what? Like, how, when? And then talking with actual players on the team later on, they were in flight heading back to South Korea as the news happened. So they didn't know really until they landed back at Incheon International Airport, which is the main airport around Seoul. And so they're getting their baggage and kind of looking on their phones, waiting for baggage to come through. And they're just getting kind of the alert then saying that this is going to happen. So you can only imagine what their reactions were just kind of all of a sudden being thrown into kind of this geopolitical statement. We're speaking with Seth Berkman about his new book, A Team of Their Own, How an International Sisterhood Made Olympic History, about the joint team in women's ice hockey uh, that North Korea and South Korea uh, fielded at the Winter Olympics last year in South Korea. So how did it happen? How, how, how did this uh, sports diplomacy get fashioned? It actually kind of started months before. So in the summer of 2017, South Korea named a new minister for culture, arts, and sport. And kind of just very randomly, he threw out in a press conference one day, oh, it would be nice in the upcoming Olympics if North Korea, South Korea could field a unified team, perhaps in women's ice hockey. And this made, you know, relatively big news in South Korea at the time because no one had ever really kind of thought of this. And the players, coaches hadn't heard anything. So they were really taken aback and they were really kind of angry about it just because, you know, they had been training for four plus years for kind of this moment. And then all of a sudden they're being told, wait, we might just add these kind of North Korean players to your team just a couple months before the games. Um, eventually, the president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in, supported the idea. You had people from the IOC and the IIHF, which is the International Ice Hockey Federation, also kind of backing it. So it started to build some momentum. But as kind of things happen in South Korea when it comes to North Korea relations, um, it just kind of petered out. And, you know, these flames of hope just kind of you know, never got ignited to a point of any real meaning. And so talk died down over the summer. And a lot of the team thought, okay, it's going to just kind of, nothing's going to happen, just Mm -hmm. like always with North Korea. But then New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's Day, I should say, 2018, Kim Jong-un goes on state-run North Korean television and really surprises the world because he says, I think it would be a great thing if North Korean athletes could compete in the upcoming Winter Olympics, which by that point are only about five weeks away. Hmm. And so South Korean government and kind of their effort and wanting to kind of improve relations with North Korea in any kind of way, because you have to remember at this time, the months before North Korea is doing these missile launches, Kim, his kind of rhetoric with Donald Trump is at an all-time high. So tensions are definitely very high on the Korean peninsula. And when Kim Jong-un kind of offers his olive branch, the South Korean government, people around the Olympic Committee are saying, hey, let's 
see how we can take advantage of it. So the wheels got in motion very quickly to try and see, let's see how we can get North Korean athletes over here. And kind of the first choice was the one brought up months earlier, which is the women's hockey team. Speaking with Seth Berkman about his new book, his fascinating new book, A Team of Their Own, How an International Sisterhood Made Olympic History. The fact that this did, in fact, happen, that this team played uh, at the at the Olympics, of course, in 2018 in South Korea with North Korean and South Koreans on the team. What kind of hopes and expectations did that lead to? It was very interesting because I think even the South Korean government themselves weren't ready for the kind of response. And um, not to say this covers the whole gamut of people, but it can kind of very broadly be broken up into two camps. Obviously, those in favor of unification and those who are kind of, I guess you could say, against it. And those those seem to tend more towards um, a very younger generation, kind of 20s, 30s South Koreans, who haven't grown up with any kind of real attachment to North Korea and just know North Korea kind of as this antagonistic neighbor, Mm. their feelings towards unification in general aren't as strong. Um, But then you do have a much older generation who grew up around the Korean War. They remember visiting North Korea, having family members from North Korea when Korea was still just one country. So this idea of unification still means very much to them. And so you did have conflicting sides and very strong arguments for both. There were protests all throughout Seoul and Korea leading up to the Olympics and at the Olympics for both sides. One of the most surreal scenes I remember seeing before the Unified Team's first Olympic game, the streets around the arena were just flooded with protesters for both sides, kind of, you know, just shouting rhetoric back and forth towards each other. And so it definitely polarized people. I do think perhaps so the government was not expecting um, as much of a backlash, though, towards kind of this idea of a unified team as happened. How did this unified team perform? Um, When it comes to actual performance on the ice, uh, the team ended up losing all of their Olympic games. So while it did make a very big kind of geopolitical statement, One thing that happened was by adding 12 North Korean players to the team two weeks before the Olympics, in a way they kind of brought down the quality level of play. Mm. Um, Even entering the game, South Korea was ranked about 18th in the world. So for them expected to win a game against European powers, North American powers of the sport would have been, they would have had to play kind of the perfect game. Um, I do think leading up to the Olympics, they were playing well. They, played a lot of college teams in uh, NCAA Division I teams, Wisconsin, Minnesota, those teams. And they were able to give, you know, teams that win national championships a good game, you know, two goal, three goal deficits. And you think a team like Minnesota themselves could probably field an Olympic team. So South Korea showed potential that they could compete with the world's best. But once the North Korean players came in, the IOC mandated that at least three North Korean players had to dress for each game. So you had three more worthy, kind of more skilled South Korean players sitting every game. And they just, two weeks is not enough time to kind of integrate players into your systems, into your plays. And so you could definitely see it on the ice, how the quality of play dipped with the North Korean players involved. 
Seth Berkman's new book is A Team of Their Own, How an International Sisterhood Made Olympic History about the unified North and South Korean women's ice hockey team at the 2018 Olympics in South Korea. It's a fascinating story. It's one of those stories uh, in the annals of sport that will be talked about for a long time. Seth, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for writing the book. Jeremy, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.